0: Hey friends, we've got an exciting program that I want to share with you, our upcoming Climate Leadership Accelerator into the arena. It's designed for those of us who feel compelled to influence climate leadership in our organizations and communities. In the program, you'll deepen your understanding of the systems operating within the climate crisis and connect with an incredible network of leaders, challenge your own assumptions and develop a hopeful framework for action. So, head to smallgiants.com.au slash into the arena to learn more and apply. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at EcoStore. We've been working with EcoStore for years to share their ethos of safer products for home, body, and baby, made with respect for the environment. Every product is made from naturally derived ingredients, selected because they are safer and more sustainable. You can find EcoStore products in Woolworths. Coles and Chemist Warehouse and learn more about how they are doing their part for a better tomorrow at ecostore.com.au
1: Hey there, it's Nathan here, joining you on the back of the Byron Writers' Festival, where I had the great joy of chatting with Damon Gammo. Australian actor turned award-winning documentary maker. Damon was the man behind the 2014 expose, That Sugar Film, and more recently has released 2040, an extraordinary piece of storytelling that shows us what the future might look like if humanity embraced the environmental solutions that are currently available to us. Things like regenerative farming, electric cars, new economic models and empowering girls and women. Damon and I kick off this chat talking about the incredible impact his documentary is already having on individuals, organisations, and even our systems at large. I had a meeting a couple of days ago, and coincidentally, the guy that I was meeting had some nail polish on, some green sparkly nail polish, and I was like, oh, I had some scribble on it, and I was like, oh, what's, what's on your nail? And he said, 2040. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And he said, yeah, I lost a, I lost a bet to my dad. Um, my dad and I bet to see how, who could get the most people to go and watch um, 2040. <laughs> awesome. And the guy got nine and his dad got 15. So he <laughs> went and polished his nail um, as another kind of conversation starter to then generate more conversations oh, to get people right. to see the that's film. Bad, so I thought bad. that was very cool. Um, but I thought we actually would start, I mean, because I, I loved that story of that guy with the, with the nail polish. And I wanted to know, um, what else has inspired you about how people have been mobilised by the documentary so far and what you've observed? And...
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think that's been the, the most exciting part of, of, the, of the journey so far. The film itself has been really well received by the public and the box office is quite incredible, but it's what's actually happening behind the scenes. So the level of screenings that are going on at a corporate level, the banks, uh, energy companies, uh, different parliaments and governments... About 35 councils have done a What's Our 2040 night where they invite the councillors to sit on stage. They have about 200 people in the room and then they show the film and discuss the most applicable solutions to their region, which is really wonderful. Um, We found out on Friday that the UN are going to show three minutes of the film at the opening of the General Assembly to every world leader on September the 24th. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And... And I guess uh, the, always the intention of the film was that the film was just a small part of a much larger ecosystem. Mm. So we teamed up with about 50 different organisations around the world just to give people points of action that they can take when they have seen the film and they are inspired. And, and just some of those um, initiatives have gone. It's been unbelievable. So we, we launched a, a seaweed platform, like a crowdfund for a seaweed platform off the coast of Brunei Island in Tasmania to be Australia's first marine permaculture and that was a um, $350,000 crowdfund, and we're $35,000 short of that, and it's about to tip in the next few weeks, and so we'll probably build that in September. And the Red Grid, which is a microgrid energy company that's similar to the one in Bangladesh in the film, uh, we did an equity crowdfund for that for an Australian company, and they've uh, raised $3.5 million in the last three weeks just from people seeing the film and saying, I want to get involved, and then the Carbonate initiative, which again pays farmers to put carbon back into the soil, um, There's just been an extraordinary amount of farmers that have signed up, which is really great, that want to switch to regenerative practices, but also the public um, have just uh, donated a ridiculous amount of money to start making that happen. So it just speaks to people's willingness and readiness to actually lead on this issue because we're not getting the leadership where we should be. So people are willing to take that action into their own hands, which yeah. is just wonderful.
1: yeah. Well, well, the, yeah. <laughs> And the documentary is a real invitation for us to kind of step into our power, whatever kind of skills we have, whatever passions we have, whatever we have at our disposal, to actually use that and turn it into something constructive um, for the future. And I think it's a really beautiful and clear and explicit invitation for us. Mm. So you're mobilising. But what I was thinking then as well is, you know... At Dumbo Further, we talk a lot about the power of story to, you know, this really interesting relationship between the stories we tell and the lives we live. You know, our identities are inextricably linked to the stories we tell about ourselves. Mm. And it also relates to the world that we're creating and the culture that we're creating. The stories we tell about who we want to be um, as a civilization ultimately shapes who we are as a civilization. And we've been kind of told this story of separation and it's this industrial growth mindset that we've had for the past 400 years that we have this I mentality and that we're disconnected from one another. Um, and what I'm really hearing from this documentary and um, from more and more in conversations at large is that we are moving into a state of into, the being, into being, And the, the Buddhist ecologist Joanna Macy, she calls this period the, the great turning. And I think there's yeah. an enormous opportunity in that for us to move into... Um, yeah, I mean, I,
2: I think um, the story we have been telling ourselves and our interaction with the planet is coming to an end. You know, we, we can't keep telling that story because we'll destroy ourselves. So w- to ensure our survival, we have to start telling a new story. And I, I think it's interesting because if you look pre-scientific revolution, lots of cultures told a very different story about their interaction with the planet. If you look at even our own indigenous culture, their language was uh, custodians of the land. Um, the Native American Indians, you know, Mother Earth and Father Sky, um, there's even a wonderful story Uh, in China, which, again, their language was, we are reverent guests of the land. And there's a great story about an admiral that we hear far too little about called Admiral Zhang, and he he sailed around the world for 33 years with 27,000 men on 300 ships in 1433. And they didn't conquer anyone. They just went around to learn from different cultures and exchange goods and take back animals to their emperor. And it was this beautiful exchange because, again, they had this deeper story of what their role was with the land. Then you cut to the scientific revolution and things that happened um, around Christianity before that as well. But you suddenly get uh, Francis Bacon, René Descartes, these kind of people, starting to use a very different language about our relationship to the earth. It is, uh, Bacon said, you know, we we must hound nature in her wanderings. We must enter and penetrate her every hole. I mean, it's very aggressive, raping language. And if you look at what happened from that moment, this schism occurred, where we saw our resources as something we extract. We're not in unity with our surroundings anymore. We are separate from it. And I think that's a great tragedy because we've lost the significance and meaning of what the planet is to us. And I often use the reference for Shakespeare. If you actually looked at it through a scientific reductionist mindset, all Shakespeare is is 26 letters arranged on a page. But what evokes the beauty of it is the meaning and the wonder and the emotion that we give to those letters. And I feel like we've viewed the planet through the same lens. We've seen it as this cold rock floating through this brutal galaxy, and we've lost the meaning and the significance, the deeper story of what it actually means to us. So if we are going to get out of this mess, I think it's really crucial that that metaphor, that underlying story we tell ourselves, needs to be reinvented and needs to be retold in a spectacular new
1: way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. <clears throat> I'm wondering, in the, in the making of the documentary, if there were storylines that you didn't want to pursue uh, because you know, this is a really hopeful account of who we can be and what we can be. <laughs> and so we are conscious of, hang on, this storyline might not serve the purpose.
2: Yeah, I, I spoke to a, um, an environmental psychologist really early in the research process. Her name uh, was Renee Lertzman, and she's a really fantastic woman. And she talks about this, um, that we've got into this rut of just telling the story about our future through this really overwhelming, anxiety-driven, fearful mm-hmm. lens. And when we do that, it just... It affects our brain chemistry. It activates the limbic system. When that's activated, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex. And once that's activated, we don't think creatively and problem-solve anymore. We go into a retreat mode. So her theory, and I think it's really valid, is that we have this wide-scale paralysis because people just don't know what to do with this constant negative information. And again, it harks back to the work of Viktor Frankl or Man's Search for Meaning or any psychology textbook that says we need hope as a motivation. We need to be, the thought of a better future that's possible is the thing that keeps us going. And I just don't think we've got that with the climate story. And that's not to say that we shouldn't feel the depths of what is happening and the overwhelm and the grief. That's really important. But I feel really concerned for our children who are feeling this at a great depth and they are overwhelmed. And I've had phone calls with friends whose kids are in tears at the the breakfast table. They need to know what's going on, but they also need to be told that there are wonderful humans that are trying to solve this, and there are solutions that exist. And if we motivated, got ourselves and combined our powers, we can overturn this, and I, I know that now. I didn't know it three years ago, mm. and I still have moments where I'm like, oh, humans, like, what are you doing? Mm. But I think for the most part, when you do spend three years looking only at the wonderful things and the solutions, it's hard not to feel hopeful. Um, yeah you know, I'm not sure if many of you even saw a few days ago, but um, Ethiopia, the people of Ethiopia planted 350 million trees in a day. I mean, that is wow. an astonishing feat of human ingenuity yeah. um, and, and, rem- and reminds us of what we're capable of um, when the times are tough. And and, you know, it's interesting, again, that these kind of countries like Ethiopia, like Bangladesh, like the Pacific Islands, they're the ones that are taking this action already because they are feeling the full brunt of of our excess. Yeah. So Australia has had it really easy for a long time and, and I think we've, we've been spoilt with our resources, but it's actually made us quite complacent in being the last to act, really, which is the great sadness of making this film, is seeing how far behind this country that I grew up loving, really is in this space. And um, I found that quite confronting,
1: actually. Yeah. Yeah. Has that frustration, you know, that anger that you feel, and I think that we all feel when you're kind of having a conversation with someone who is really Mm. kind of um, aligned in, in where we want to be and who we want to be, are you using that anger and that frustration into kind of some sort of creative fuel for... A, a new story, or, I mean, does it debilitate you as well? Because it's, it's often something that I wrestle with. And, you
2: know. No, I think, and again, this is where the environmental psychologist talked to me about, that it's really important that we acknowledge that, that not enough of our leaders are letting, them, that letting themselves feel that. Our kids are. But we need to have those moments where we go, God, this is just so overwhelming, and what, the, what are we going to do about this? And that motivated me to make the film for my daughter. How am I going to communicate this to her? And this psychologist, Renee, said to me that once you actually acknowledge that, you actually you free up the space to then start telling a new story. But if you keep repressing that, and you keep denying the reality of that happening, which is arguably what a lot of us are doing, we don't even have the capacity to start dreaming or imagining a better world because we're just so caught up in the complexity of what it means and how complex and wicked this problem really is. So uh, there needs to be those two things happen concurrently. We need to own it and feel it at its depth, but then
1: also focus
2: on the solutions.
1: You mentioned the word um, the word dreaming there and the kind of the imagination mm. that was involved in this process, and I was really curious actually while I was thinking about you and, and having this conversation. Um, there's a, a writer called Charles Eisenstein. He talks about the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. <laughs> yeah. and I think that that is exactly what you've created in this documentary. Mm. It's the more beautiful world that you, in, in some place, knew was possible, and I think that we all know is possible as well. And I'm, yeah. I'm interested in the imagination, the imaginary capacity that you had to kind of create that.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I I think that, and this isn't a criticism of science because we need it more than ever right now, but we've left scientists to do a lot of the communicating on this topic and it's unfair to them in a way because their language doesn't stir the soul. Like, it doesn't connect with us at a deep level of our values and what we hold dear. When we hear words like anthropogenic or negative emissions or even two degrees warming, what does that even mean? Like, I know some people think, well, two degrees would be an advantage, wouldn't it? I live in Melbourne, it'd it'd be great, you know. (laughs) So that's, that's a great, that's a problem. So I think there is this call for artists, storytellers, songwriters, musicians, poets to not only disseminate that information but then make it accessible and, and reignite the public's ima- imagination on this. And um, there's a beautiful quote by um, actually Terence McKenna and he says that, um, that the artist's role is to save the soul of mankind... And anything else is a dithering while Rome burns. If the artist can't find the way, then the way can't be found. And I always... This is the moment. This is the time I I feel we need to call out to all storytellers to start telling a new story, to start helping the scientists, to start helping the kids and start reimagining a future and a world that we want to live in.
1: So let's talk about some of the solutions that you, you come across and that you share in the documentary. Um, the seaweed farming was a massive one for me, and it was <laughs> super exciting to think about the potential of seaweed, not only to draw the carbon. Um, you can talk more about it, but also... Yeah, see, well, if people haven't seen the film,
2: it's... Um, yeah. Yeah, so the problem is that about 93% of the excess heat from global warming has gone into our ocean, so uh, that's obviously having enormous impacts, and one of them is that a lot of the seaweed has gone extinct, so... We've lost about 95% of our bull kelp in Tasmania, for example, because of that excess heat. So uh, the the miraculous thing about seaweed, I'm going to call it sea queen, actually, from now on it's so great, is that it actually can grow half a metre a day and up to 50 metres long. So it's able just to sequester a phenomenal amount of carbon from the atmosphere. So there's a a physicist in in Massachusetts called Brian Van Herzen, Dr. Brian Van Herzen, and he's developed these seaweed platforms that take the cooler nutrient laden waters from below that haven't been affected by global warming and actually cycle them up to the warmer layer so it actually creates a cooler layer on the top. And he's been able to kickstart the growth of this seaweed. And once you kickstart that growth, the fish have a place to lay their eggs again. It creates almost like a forest for the fish populations, which, as we know, they're in dire trouble right around the world. So it just regenerates this life. It alkalises the water. Uh, The seaweed can be used now for biofuels, plastics, uh, fertilisers on soil. Um, If you feed it to a cattle, it lowers the methane emissions by about 80%. Like, it's this wonderful solution. But more importantly for global warming, the amount of carbon that it can sequester is phenomenal. So... Uh, Brian's estimated, and Tim Flannery's looked at this as well, that there's 100 million square kilometres of ocean between Australia and California, just over 2% of that ocean, if we planted these kelp forests, we'd sequester all of our current emissions. And once you – they can harvest it about six times a year. Once you cut the seaweed and store it, if it sinks to the below 1,000 metres, then the weight of the ocean will store it as carbon on the ocean floor. So uh, that's why we've launched the first one in Tasmania. We want to get it going. Brian's in uh, the Philippines. He's just launched one. In Bali, he's just launched one. And we've, since we've been showing the film for the last six months, uh, we've had lots of interest from impact investors right around the world. And Brian's been inundated with people that want to kickstart a sea queen industry, which I think is really exciting. Wow.
1: Yeah. What else blew your mind in the process of, of learning about... Because all of these solutions are things that are available to us right now. That's what's really fascinating. Yeah,
2: that, was the, that was the premise, was that everything had to exist right now. Uh, the seaweed, obviously, was pretty spectacular, but the one that got me was the, the, <laughs> the education or empowerment of girls and women around the world. So I, do, I don't think that's very often linked with climate change. And the stats say that if a girl is able to complete... Uh, sorry, if she doesn't finish her education, she's like, and this is not just in developing countries, this is in wealthier nations as well, she's likely to have five or more children, but if she's allowed to complete her education, uh, she's given access to uh, reproductive health services, she's given uh, work opportunities, then she gets to choose when and how many children she has, and that number comes down to two. So the UN says that's a difference of 1.1 billion people by 2050, which has a profound impact on our resource use, but also on climate change. So Again, it's one of those solutions where let's do that anyway. Let's empower girls and women. Yeah. Done. But then we get this beautiful bonus off the back of it, which dramatically impacts the way we're treating the planet. So, that to me was was the most profound solution in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. I want
1: to talk about a bit about the economic model. You um, feature Kate Rayworth and her donut economics in the in the in the film. Mm. Um, but this idea that we need to start re- rethinking about the, the economy that we live in and, and start reimagining what that could look like, mm. um, while also existing in this paradigm, and I don't know what kind yeah. of thoughts you have on, on how we move. Well, that's
2: probably a, that was I had to leave out 40 minutes of that of the yeah. film, and that was the toughest part because that's a conversation that no government's willing to have right now. Is this sort of constant addiction to growth and what that means for our planet? So. The simple stats are that we're using about 90 billion metric tonnes of resources every year right now. So that's logging, um, minerals, metals, uh, livestock. The earth can replenish 50 billion in a year. So we're almost double the amount of what the earth can replenish in, in a year. But at our current growth rates, we're on track to, to, to use 150 billion metric tonnes by 2050. So that wipes out a majority of living things on the planet. Yet no one's having that discussion. If any politician talked about not constant growth, then we would, you know, they'd lose their position of power and as Kate Rayworth says, they'd lose their place in the G20 summit because you just can't talk about that. But that is, I think, one of the most uh, important issues of our time and how we're going to deal with that. But there are models that exist, people have been proposing ways of, you know, using resources in a better way, a sharing economy or a circular economy, at least starting to put some legitimate boundaries on how we're going. And I think that's a bigger question, a bigger discussion, is that we've kind of swung from a very centralised government through the 20th century and obviously for a range of reasons, lots of people lost their lives because of that, we've tipped all our power to corporations and I think people just aren't aware of how much power they're actually given, especially at a trade treaty level, the World Trade Organisation. So many of those rules that are put in place are done behind closed doors, The, the media aren't allowed there, the public certainly can't engage with them and we're often just represented by a trade minister or a finance minister, whereas this flow of resources affects... Our societies, the environment. Yet no one's there representing that voice for us. There's no democratic process in it, and there's a, a classic example of this clause called an ISDS clause, an investor-state dispute settlement. And there is a case of, in the Elbe River in Hamburg, in Germany. And they, Vattenfall, uh, wanted to build this huge coal-fired fired power, power plant, and the local German government went and did an assessment and said, "You know what? You can't build this because the damaging wastewaters they're going to go straight into the river, and all the fish are going to get killed." So because of this clause, that company were able to sue the government for $1.4 billion in breach of profits, affecting their profits. So of course the government couldn't pay that. Also the law stipulates they can't counter-sue, so they had to back down, the coal station gets built, all the wastewater are going to the river now, and of course the fish are dead. So that is a fundamental rule of the game that needs to be altered if we're going to get to this 2040 I'm, I'm proposing and they're the things that people just don't know about right now and if the, that trial that took place between the government and that corporation was done in secret, no media was allowed, uh, the three supervisors on the panel were all appointed by the World Trade Organisation, there was just nothing democratic about the process. So, if we don't wrestle that back and make it a, you know, we should be determining the boundaries. That the society should determine what's applicable. We shouldn't be giving the rules to the corporations like that. So um, that's not to say that we, don't, we just ban corporations and there's no in- innovation yeah. ingenuity. It's just to say we need to be aware of, of who's setting the rules and let's not disempower ourselves there.
1: Yeah. But so, but so how do we reclaim our agency in that situation? Or, I mean, you, I'm not asking... I'm supposing that you have the answers, but these are the questions that emerge you know, from, from those kind of statements. Like, yeah, I mean, I think there's... Um, I think there's a, a
2: desperate cry for reempowerment right around the world at the moment. I think that's why this rise of nationalism is happening everywhere. I think it's a response to... I mean, I understand to a point that the Trump voters, what they're saying is, you've completely taken our jobs away from us. All our power now isn't at a national level. It's by these corporations that float around the globe and we have no way to get to them. We don't want that anymore. We want power in our local community. We want a say of what happens in our area and we want you to nationalise. And unfortunately, it's been it's been taken advantage of. But I think what it's also saying is it's an opportunity for us to really localise again Mm. and actually empower where it it matters to people, in their own region, in their own communities, Mm. because that's been obliterated by this current system. And we all want that. That's how we evolved, close Mm. to each other, close to nature, wanting to connect with fellow humans. Mm. And yet this system at the moment is actually just separating us at all costs. And I think, again, this is a feedback. This is a moment. This is an opportunity. It's like going to the doctor and the doctor says, you want to keep living like you are? Well, you're going to destroy yourself and you're going to go down this path. Yeah. Or you can fundamentally change your system and the way you operate and treat each other and the planet and this is the outcome you might get. Yeah. So that's where we're at right now. It's a, it's a pivotal moment. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I love that, actually, talking about and the symptoms that we're experiencing in our planet as, as information for us, feedback from yep. the Earth and, you know, the disease that we're experiencing in our own bodies, societally, uh, in mm-hmm. the environment, like using that as information to actually...
2: Yeah, we've got the technology to do that for the first time. Yeah. Like we can... You know, Will Steffen's done some amazing work in Canberra and he, we have crossed certain planetary boundaries now. We know we're using too many chemicals on our soil. In fact, the UN says we've got 60 years of topsoil left. You know, mm-hmm. so there's the feedback. That's the foundation of our civilization. Like, what are we going to do about that? We know that we've crossed the boundaries with ocean acidification, with land clearing, but also internally we've crossed the boundaries on income inequality, on social wellbeing. Like, so we're getting all these metrics now that we can measure... We just need, we've given too much power to the corporations, there's no boundaries. There's no one making sure that we're staying within the limits that won't destroy ourselves. And unless we address that, then we're just going to fly off the cliff. So it's a really tricky argument at a time that I think, uh, certainly my research says that the fossil fuel industry and certain members of that extreme right in America have done a magnificent job at telling their story. Mm. And they've used really clever tactics to divide us. Uh, They still do it online. They've got all sorts of um, wonderful techniques they use. That unless we counter that with a really powerful story of our own, it's going to slip away. And so I think that's why I made the film and that's why I'm encouraging everyone to start talking about a future that they want.
1: Otherwise, we're going to march into someone else's future that's been created Mm. for us. Mm. I'm interested in what you had to unlearn in this process. You, know, you you mentioned before that we're told so many things that kind of shape our behaviour and inform the way that we interact with one another. Mm. What, what was the process of unlearning some of those stories? <sighs> and have you been able to, I guess?
2: I think it's been more of a, a personal discovery for me, to be honest. I think it's, um, it's been about my own development as a human being and, and my role in the world and what's... Um, what's coming from uh, an ego or a need versus what's coming from a genuine passion and and love for my daughter and her generation, you know, and I think uh, that's really tough in our current system where culture's not our friend, you know, and we are bombarded by information every day that tries to make us the self-important one, make us the individual. It's very hard to think big picture and collectively right now, let alone to dream or use our imaginations. We've got so much content coming at us now that we stay in the present, and I often think that, you know, can you imagine sort of Monet wandering up to some beautiful, you know, pond with a lovely bridge on it and all the lilies are there and he's like, that's really nice and pulls out his phone and starts scrolling through his Instagram feed.
1: Yeah.
2: Or Van Gogh, the same, just put the sunflowers down on the table and just, like, get out his Twitter and stuff like that. Yeah. We, we, we don't give ourselves that opportunity to be idle anymore, to actually sit and dream, our kids especially, you know, what it is to be bored and what happens in those moments, you know. It's... Um, we're so desperate to create Einsteins out of our children that, you know, Einstein was a dreamer. He wasn't working all the time. He'd ride his bike around and come up with these amazing concepts because he wasn't filling his brain with information all the time. And that I see as one of the greatest threats to any of our progress right now is that we're not stepping away from culture enough and letting ourselves dream of a better world. We're being told what to think so much that I think it's deleterious.
1: The work for me is really about being alert to what, the, how the culture is influencing me, and that's what I'm curious about. How you've this journey that you've had, mm. being able to hear um, how I'm being shaped and how I'm being affected, and then to be able to not only step away from that and start mm. to do all this reimagining, which is, you know, incredible, um, but to actually see the, the impulse and to feel the impulse.
2: Yeah, and I, I had a sort of a bit of an epiphany moment in my early thirties, and I was, um, I was really sick in hospital, and I had up until that point been you know, I'd done acting a lot, been quite narcissistic, it was filling a hole in me of like trying to find validation and get approval for, that's what acting is really in all the ways, you, you sort of, you, you're telling other people's stories, you're getting picked up a lot, well fed, um, there is some great merit to it um, for, for those that still are passionate about it, but for me it was absolutely an escape, and I was in this hospital bed and I was staying, yeah, there were four 85 year olds in my room, or eight, over 85, and, and myself, and had this spectacular week. It was like, it would make a very good sitcom, some of the conversations we had. But I remember sitting up one night at two in the morning and I wrote a letter to myself as an 85-year-old as though I was sitting in that bed with them and I, and I said, have you, have you done the things that you wanted to do? Were you brave enough to tell your own stories or were you always just going to hide behind other people's stories? And, you know, in all the history of space and time, this was your 85 years on the planet and were you brave enough? Did you take the risks or were you just hiding behind this illusion of yourself? And it really got me. And I just thought, I, I don't want to write that letter to myself. I don't want to be in that state at 85. And I I have to find a way to get over myself, to think bigger and actually start speaking my truth. And um, that's that was a pivotal moment for me the next day. I just... Uh, all sorts of information started coming and um, ideas and it fundamentally changed my life and I just needed to give myself a good hard talking to Mm. Um, um, and uh, yeah my life's never
1: never been the same since So, Damon's a legend If you haven't seen the doco 2040 I hope you're looking up how to do that right now What I love about the work is how mobilising it is and I wanted to share with you just a few of the audience questions and comments from this session, starting with a beautiful moment from a young Malambimbi woman, whose name is Olivia Roseberry.
3: Hi, I just want to say thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thanks. It's so important. Um, I'm about to share something which is really bold, and I think um, what this world needs right now is this type of act of boldness to step together in community. I'm local. I'm part of a big community around Mullen, Bimby and Byron that gather regularly, mm-hmm. um, stepping on the front lines and making a difference. I'm a musician. My name is Olivia. Um, I've been writing songs about the earth for years, but uh, I find it really hard to get these songs that have a lot of depth to get out there, yeah. and I want my songs to go to places where they can make a difference. So I'm going to give you a little excerpt. Okay. <laughs> No more lies and destruction. Don't you dare dig up that dirt. You've been poisoning our waters. You've knocked it down. It's not just the land that you hurt. And we all need our sacred waters and the land to nourish our soul. Don't for you forget where you come from. Cause she's the one that keeps us whole and let her hold you and forgive you. And it's time to stop these games and no more need for greed or hunger if we respect the mother's ways.
0: Very
2: good.
3: (laughs) 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 Thank you. Um, there's a lot of people in this community who do have these messages and do have the depth and have been, um, I'm currently homeless (laughs) and part of a minority or a large population, but I guess under the breadline. And, um, I would love to be able to contribute to these projects, but I find it really hard to get out there and I'm so passionate about it. And, Mm. There's a whole community waiting to just have a platform to actually get up and contribute on the large scale. It would be a dream of mine to do that. Can you
2: tell everyone your name and where they can find your music?
3: Yeah. Um, My name is Olivia Roseberry and uh, I have one song on Spotify. It actually (laughs) was taken at South Golden Beach acknowledging the First Nations and the wisdom of all First Nations around the world of their connection to the earth, which is what my passion is. And... um, I have an amazing videographer. That's on YouTube and Facebook. Olivia Roseberry Music. Right. I don't want to sound like self-promoting. I just want <laughs> to actually get involved, sure. and that's that's what I'm here for. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks,
2: Olivia.
0: My name's Alan Harkness. I've been around the film industry for 70 years. Right. I've seen your film twice. <clears throat> the second time I took five extra people with me. <laughs>
2: you have to paint your nails, Alan. Yeah, it's like... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah I'm up here nowadays uh, recovering from a big health problem, but right now I've got more energy than I've had for three years. Right. If there's anything that I can do to help you, you know, in expanding. This film, it should go into every school in the country and it should go to every politician in the world. Hmm. I'm available.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Alan.
0: Um, Damien, can we have real,
3: solu- I mean, yeah, real solutions um, while we have a growth economy mm-hmm. and in a, uh, based on um, growth of population?
2: Mm. Uh, yeah I mean I think we we have to like, we have to have a transition phase I don't think it's an, as extreme as saying you know we have to end everything right now it's not going to happen it's not how we respond that there is a growing movement around the world of sort of impact investing so people actually starting to shift their money into regenerative practices it's probably not happening as, as fast as, as we'd like but it is happening And I think what I'm particularly excited about is what New Zealand are doing right now or what uh, Canberra's just agreed to do, which is actually expanding the measurements of society. So we move just beyond GDP and growth and we start to factor in other areas that we hold dear, our values. So Bhutan is the, is the leading model and um, I was lucky enough to go there this year and they have nine pillars that they measure their success by and that's not just growth but it's economic... Sorry, it's community vitality, um, psychological well-being, uh, gender equality and even when we were there there were some ministers discussing, discussing mining and they actually said we need to stop mining on the grounds of intergenerational equity, which means we're starting to steal resources from future generations. So when we can start factoring all those things that we value, I think that's a really logical next step to whatever new system we're going to create. I don't think anyone knows what that looks like uh, or how soon it's going to come, but we know this current one can't work. But rather than be too extreme about it, which I think is just going to scare people away, we have to find a way to uh, transition. And I feel like there is excitement in that investment space, but also in actually um, making the invisible more visible in how we measure our success. Yeah.
3: Um, Diamond, I want to congratulate you. Um, for your age, I'd say that's the most amazing presentation I've heard from from a young person, so I just think it's wonderful you've you've taken this on so early in your life. Mm. Um, The only thing that I'd like to ask is, uh, in my mind, is that uh, how we can create this conscience within the corporates. Uh, For for me, everyone agrees with you, but then we know the other side of it, and the, the dollar seems to always win. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Uh, Thanks for the lovely words. What's been the biggest shock of this process so far is is the willingness of corporations to show the film but then have really robust discussions about it. And I think sometimes we can label the corporation as a corporation and forget that there are human beings within those structures that have kids and deeply care and are really frustrated by what their company is doing. And they are going to the boss now and saying, what are we doing? It's not enough anymore. Things have to change. And some of the discussions we've had even in the last few weeks have, have, I don't think would have happened for three or four years ago. Uh, and not only that, these organisations are now getting enormous pushback from their shareholders. You know, so we've done screenings to the banks every day. They're getting people saying, why aren't you divesting from fossil fuels? What are you doing? We're actually going to leave you unless you change. You know, so it's not as big as we'd like it to be, but again, I'm, I am a glass half full person. And I, I feel that there is something brewing, and I think we'll look back at this time. There, there is a, a shift going on, uh, in the same way. Yeah. So. Yeah.
4: Hi, Damon. Um, my name's Louise. Uh, last weekend, I was at a summit on the Gold Coast. And I spent, uh, I listened to Charles Massey talking for two Mm. hours. He wrote the book Call of the Red Warbler. Yep. Um, It was just very confronting to hear everything he was saying about the agricultural industry. Yep. Um, People uh, talk about sustainable agriculture, where we should be talking about regenerative agriculture. Mm. He said that he had a lot of frustrations with governments. They just weren't willing to listen to what was happening because the the big corporations were dictating yep. what the government's decisions were so he said ultimately it had to come from us yep. the change had to come from the farmers and from the people and the same thing I guess is happening with you so mm. for all of us what might be three things we can start doing today to make a change
2: yeah I mean I'm loath to be prescriptive we, we, we sort of developed a, a website uh, off the film so that we didn't say to everyone, you know what, you've got to all eat less meat, ride your bike to work, and we sort of have these generic things that people do. That's not how we all light up or respond. So you can go to our website, which is whatsare2040.com, and fill out this questionnaire that asks you what type of person you are and what your interests are and what lights you up, and then we'll give you six or seven things based on those things that you can do on your own, in your school, in your community and whatnot. But I think I will say that with Regen Ag is that, That, to me, is one of the most exciting movements that's happening around the world, regardless of what the governments are saying. And people are starting to make that connection between the health of our soil and the food. So even farmers that are still reticent on climate change know that they have to improve their soils because we've been mining the soils for so long. And my favourite statistic around this is that um, you'd need to eat eight oranges today to get the same level of vitamin A that an orange had, one orange, 60 years ago. Mm because of the health of that soil. So the more carbon we put back into the soil, the more organic matter, the cascading benefits of that, not just for the climate but for our own health and the water retention of that soil is one of the greatest and most exciting s- stories going around. And I think you talk to Charles Massey, I you know um, Charlie Arnott's here somewhere too, three or four years ago, they might have been getting 50 or 60 farmers in their room to, to their talks. They're now getting four or 500 farmers in that room. So again, this is happening as it's always happened historically, leaders don't lead on these topics. They are taught how to lead by passionate individuals, by individuals taking a stand and saying, we want it differently. The abolitionists did it, the suffragettes did it, interracial marriage, it happened in America. It never happened from the top down. You know, It happened from people really caring. And I think, again, I spent three years just looking at those people and it's hard not to feel incredibly excited
1: by the direction it's headed in. Yeah. Mm. I did want to ask with with your, your new baby about to be born any day now. Yes. If you made this movie again, um, would it be any different? Would you would it be exactly the same?
2: <laughs> oh well I'd have to address it to both my daughters now. That would be the challenge. How do you make a film for two yeah. two kids? But I I would say no. I think um, it was exactly right for where I was at in my life and, and what, what was. Um, there's you know, there's so many things that we had to leave out. That was the tough part and I but I think maybe I would have put more about the economy in, uh, I sort of let, but I, just, I did want it to be aspirational. And the minute yeah. you put that in, it just becomes a different film. And, yeah, right. and this was really... I wanted kids to come in as well, and, and that's been the best part of this experience, is seeing how many kids have seen the film and what, yeah. how many school visits I've done now. And they're telling their parents, they're telling their teachers, and to be honest, they are asking by far the best questions. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, we've done, I've done 72 Q&As of this film right now, and the kids' questions around, you know, why are microgrids illegal? Why have we got such centralised energy? Yeah, yeah. What's wrong with population? Like, oh, just wow. beautifully articulate questions and again, some of them still are in that dream state. They understand that they're, they're, they're really open and they haven't been sort of um, weighed down by what we, what we know and I think there's a, we can listen to them right now because there's a purity and an innocence and they're talking common sense. Yeah. far more sense than our leaders are, and that's why they're taking to the streets and they're so passionate. So I think it's we have to support them and we have to nurture them um, and not scare them entirely, make sure they know that there's people that do want to join their crusade and create a much better world for them.
0: Hi. So many of our young people these days are really stressed about what is happening in the environment. Um, I'm just wondering, what would you say to them to give them hope and to help them to be proactive mm. in moving ahead.
2: Uh, well, that's why I made the film, is is to sort of offer that hope and to remind them that people do care, and that again, that I think we've been faced with with these, these moments before through history. Not to the level of complexity of this, but uh, I often say it: if you if you asked any abolitionists 60 years before slavery was ended, they were all told to get off the streets and they were utopian to even imagine a world without slaves or that the economy could survive. Um, The suffragettes, exactly the same, told to get off the streets. You know, men are the ones that make the important decisions in in society, not you women. And here we are right now, these kids are being told to get off the streets and told to shut up and they don't know any better. And I feel like um, they're not going to stop and I, they are so fired up, they're so passionate, that to me that's where the hope is. And I think to know, to tell any child that they're not alone, you know, that there's a, a whole planet full of those children uh, with the same concerns and passion and fire and determination to get it right and that more and more there are adults starting to listen to them and uh, that I think we're going to look back at this moment in 20 or 30 years as, I think, one of the most exciting transitions in our history as a species. And I... Wouldn't have said that three years ago, but I feel it with all my fibre now that I think we're going to get through this. Mm. And I'd say that to any child, Mm. yeah.
0: Mm.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast. Thank you, Damon, for your insight bombs and for making 2040. Dumbo Feather is part of the regenerative movement and deeply invested in bringing about all kinds of systems change for a thriving planet and humanity. Do support us by subscribing to our magazine at dumbofeather.com. Thanks to Lizzie Martin for editing this podcast, and Dennis Liu for the music, and I'll catch you next month for another extraordinary conversation. This podcast is sponsored
0: by G Adventures. When you travel on a small group tour with G Adventures, you also support the local people you meet and the communities you visit, helping make our world a little bit better for everyone. Our responsible approach to travel is demonstrated in many ways on our small group tours, through travel guidelines for children, wildlife and indigenous people. Plus, social enterprise projects travelers can experience on tour. See how far good can travel at gadventures.com.au.